Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to another George Consortium COVID Law and Policy Briefing. It's presented, as always, by our colleagues around the country in association with Public Health Law Watch at Northeastern University and the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University. Uh, we're here, as we always are, uh, on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays at noon to provide expert legal analysis uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. My name is Lance Gable. I'm an associate professor at Wayne State University Law School. Uh, my two guests today for our topic, which is liability and immunity, uh, are going to be uh, Nicholas P. Terry, who is the Hall Render Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Hall Center for Law and Health at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law, and Tim Litt Timothy D. Litton, who is the Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development, Distinguished University Professor and Professor of Law for the at the Center of Health Law, Society, Health Law and Society, excuse me, uh, at the Georgia State University College of Law. So, uh, Tim and Nick, it's great to have you here today. Obviously, one of the really pressing legal issues that's emerging during the COVID-19 outbreak are issues related to liability and the potential for um, immunity to liability for employers, institutions, and otherwise. And so this is an issue that's going to continue to grow in importance, especially as many jurisdictions are now beginning to lift some of the stay-at-home orders and other restrictions on working. And I want to really cover some of the important issues that are likely to emerge today in our conversation. And so I'd like to start with Tim and just ask, what are some of the main considerations in play when we're talking about liability for um, employers or institutions in this in this current setting? Well, individuals and companies that provide professional services are generally subject to liability for negligence. Um, that is, if they fail to exercise reasonable care under the circumstances and they injure people in the course of providing medical services or other kinds of services, they could be subject to lawsuits that would hold them liable for damages. And also, individuals and companies who produce products, uh, manufacture or sell products, are subject to liability for defects in those products. And that would include mismanufacture or inadequate warnings with the products or faulty designs for the products. So this liability exposure generally provides an incentive for companies who are eager to avoid lawsuits to try and exercise either reasonable care to make sure they don't do anything that would subject them to being sued or to be very careful to make sure to screen out any defects in their products or to make sure to provide adequate warnings for their products. So liability exposure, that is the prospect of being sued, often gives people a strong incentive to make sure that they're taking proper care. They also tend to take out liability insurance policies, which means when they do get sued, a liability insurer will be there to back them up to make sure that they don't get a catastrophic damage award against them and kind of go out of business. The liability insurance kind of kicks in and pays those damage awards and may even provide um, legal help. Now, even though they carry liability insurance, individuals and companies tend to be very nervous about being sued. And as a result, sometimes they may be led to take too many precautions or to be too timid in the face of um, the prospect of being being sued. And so there's a concern sometimes that liability exposure will lead doctors to curtail their services or product manufacturers to get out of the business. And because of these fears of what we might call over deterrence or worry that um, people are going to be too timid in the products that they make and they'll get out of manufacturing, sometimes states and the federal government provide immunity from lawsuits. They provide immunity from liability exposure. And I'll give you two good examples. One is the Congress of the United States granted immunity to vaccine manufacturers because they were worried that liability exposure was driving man vaccine manufacturers out of the business of making crucial vaccines. So what they did is they provided immunity from lawsuits. Um, a second example of this is many states provide immunity for physicians for um, responding to emergencies. So if there's a car accident, a physician runs over to be of help. Um, there's worry that liability exposure for medical malpractice might lead a physician to sort of hang back and not jump in to help people out in an accident situation. So states often confer immunity on those doctors. So these are types of immunity that we see 
And the one last thing to know in terms of background is, is that usually when Congress gets into the act and provides immunity from lawsuits, they at the same time provide some sort of alternative compensation scheme for people who are injured. So in the case of vaccines, while vaccine manufacturers are protected from liability exposure, there's also an alternative compensation fund for people who are injured by the side effects of vaccines and they can apply for compensation. So instead of suing, they apply to the government. They say, my child has been injured by a measles vaccine from a bad reaction and the federal government provides a scheme to give them compensation. Yeah. So along those lines, in terms of the federal government's role in potentially addressing restrictions on ability uh, for people to bring lawsuits successfully and, and provide these alternative schemes or just other regimes that might apply, I wanted to go to Nick and ask about what, if anything, the federal government uh, is either doing in response to the COVID-19 outbreak in this area or or what could happen. So, so either existing structures that might apply or other things that are being considered right now at the federal level? Well, let me start by um, endorsing uh, Tim's last point. I mean, when we get to the end game of COVID and we're talking about COVID vaccines, the Vaccine Immunity, the Vaccine Compensation Act are going to be the the things that we talk about most probably. At the moment, um, when you look at the liability shields for private actors under federal law, they're relatively limited. The one that likely will be of most importance is the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act of 2005, also known as PrEP. And this creates a shield for what are called, quote, covered countermeasures, um, principally drugs, devices, vaccines used to fight a national emergency. Um, It shields manufacturers, um, including some others in the supply chain. And as Tim noted with regard to vaccine, it also has a compensation fund, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. Um, PrEP has to be triggered by a determination of a public health emergency by the HHS secretary. And the secretary did that on March the 27th. Uh, So that is now in effect for products designed to mitigate uh, COVID-19. In addition to uh, PrEP, we have the Volunteer Protection Act of 1997, which immunizes volunteers who work for nonprofits or government entities. That's in place the whole time. It's not COVID-19 sensitive. There's no need for an emergency declaration. Um, But the VPA only applies to those who volunteer with nonprofits or governments. Um, And that probably explains why the CARES Act of 2020 introduced a broader immunity for healthcare providers who volunteered during COVID. There are misconduct exceptions and so on. Um, And uh, unlike the VPA, of course, the CARES immunity only applies during uh, the COVID-19 state of emergency. Many states have similar provisions um, under the Uniform Emergency Volunteer Health Practitioners Act. Yeah, so I'd like to go back to Tim for a minute and kind of uh, continue along these lines and thinking about how these kinds of liability shields or immunity provisions might play themselves out if we're thinking about uh, employers. Um, We we can imagine lots of scenarios where um, people who are starting to operate their businesses again are being faced with the potential for litigation. And, you know, people might be at workers or even customers to uh, publicly open establishments might end up uh, getting ill as they begin to return to those establishments. And and would any of these provisions uh, that, that Nick just mentioned at the federal level or anything else that, that might be in place at the state level address the issue of liability shields or or would this just be treated like a like a typical tort lawsuit? Well, the case of customers or patrons for businesses and the case of employees who are working at businesses are really quite different. They're governed by different areas of the law. When we're talking about employees, most injuries that occur in the workplace are covered by workers' compensation. So employers generally in all states have to provide workers' compensation insurance 
insurance for all their employees. And when an employee is injured on the work in the workplace, pretty much for any reason that's associated with the work, then that's an insurance claim. And so there's no lawsuit because workers' compensation is an exclusive remedy, meaning that in exchange for getting this insurance protection for injuries suffered at work, um, employer, employees are not allowed to sue their employers for negligence. And so it's probably the case that if employees go back to work and they contract COVID-19 in the workplace due to the carelessness or lack of precautions by their employers, that um, they would make workers' compensation claims. There's a wrinkle in this, however, which is, is that most workers' compensation statutes have exclusions. That is, they don't provide insurance coverage for illnesses that are generally available in the population. So if you get flu and it's generally you know going around and you may or may not have gotten it at work, um, generally there's an exclusion for that coverage. However, if you're in a sector where your exposure to these kinds of public illnesses um, is especially acute in the type of work you do, like you're a nurse or you work at a lab, then actually you are covered by workers' compensation. The problem with COVID-19 is we don't really know how it is courts are likely to apply this exclusion for general illnesses in the population. And so if the exclusion does not apply, that means workers' comp um, does cover these types of illnesses. You won't see lawsuits by employees. You'll see claims in the workers' compensation system. And if COVID-19 claims are excluded, they may generate tort claims. And it seems that there's a lot of disagreement among law professors and people practicing in this field at the moment. We don't really know what the courts are going to do. That's the employment story. As far as the story for patrons or, cons or customers, um, there may be difficulties in bringing a lawsuit, but if you could bring a viable lawsuit against a, a restaurant or bowling alley where they didn't take proper precautions and you could show that you as a result contracted COVID-19, those are lawsuits that could go forward that could result in liability. We don't have any kinds of immunity protections currently that would be in place that would protect uh, a business against that. I think that's exactly what is being lobbied for now by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other business groups in Washington. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has said that he will not introduce onto the Senate floor any more bailout bills for COVID-19 unless they're accompanied by legislation for immunity for businesses from precisely these types of lawsuits. I, I want to bring in another topic that, that's related in a different kind of industry, and, and that involves um, liability in, in the setting of nursing homes and other, other kinds of facilities that might have you know, a special obligation to care for people. And th this could also maybe be applied to just hospital settings more generally as well. And I wanted to go to, to Nick to ask about what, what kinds of uh, liability issues are likely to arise in the context of, of nursing homes and other similar types of facilities? Let me start a little more generally and talk about the shields that we're seeing essentially for healthcare providers. Sometimes it's just healthcare workers, sometimes it's providers. Some of the state laws are sort of existing emergency immunity laws that may be triggered by a, a governor's declaration or so. But we've also seen some COVID-19 specific laws. Five states have passed these with regard to healthcare providers, and uh, another 10 have done, have introduced them in the course of a governor's emergency provisions. Um, and these generally are designed to stop suits by patients against these emergency healthcare providers. Um, they're pretty similar, um, but a few like New York's, which is, was rumored to have actually been uh, written by the lobbyists, um, goes considerably further and, for example, also extends to criminal liability, which is kind of interesting. These sort of state immunity shields for, um, emerg for emergency workers, uh, I think they pose some interesting timing questions, uh, sort of uh, 
tracing tracing back to some of the things that Tim was just saying, uh, will they be interpreted as having retroactive effect? When does the immunity end? The simple answer presumably is when the emergency order ends, but that doesn't resolve the trickier questions beloved by those of us who study statutes of limitation or duration clauses in liability insurance. Uh, For example, does the shield apply uh, to the date of the act when it's discovered, when suit is filed? And there's a sort of a causal, or if you prefer, an arising from question. Do these immunities only apply to sort of COVID-related services, or do they apply more broadly uh, to healthcare services? As to your question about uh, nursing homes, the, the numbers of deaths and cases in U.S. nursing homes, of course, is quite shocking. Um, in some states, uh, Massachusetts, for example, long-term care facilities account for 60% of all COVID-19-related deaths. And the reporting is lagging badly for nursing homes and assisted living centers. So I expect those numbers to go up a lot. They are not explicitly covered in most of these COVID-19 healthcare provider shields. Nursing homes are explicitly covered in the new in the New York one nursing homes of course are fairly well regulated at the federal and state level but they're not very good as far as their care and treatment they tend to be for profits and they have the industry has a pretty poor uh, record for safety Washington state for example where you had the first west coast covid-19 cluster has the worst record in nursing home quality and safety in the country the life care center of kirkland which is where the first major cluster occurred on on the West Coast has been fined six hundred over $600,000 for failures in its response uh, to the outbreak. Another question, I think, is with regard to these shields, even if they do apply to nursing homes or if the nursing homes manage to persuade legislatures to bring in nursing home-specific uh, shields, will they also apply to criminal activity? Will they apply to administrative sanction? And probably the industry's greatest fear for the healthcare folks uh, 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 watching. Uh, What about False Claims Act uh, quality or certification claims? Uh, It's highly unlikely that state waivers could touch those. They are, of course, incredibly powerful lobbyists, which is why the Trump administration was encouraged to get rid of the Obama ban on or partial ban on arbitration uh, agreements and so on. And interestingly, or maybe ironically or horrifically, there is actually a CMS proposed rule out there at the moment to roll back infection control regulation in nursing homes. Wow. So th- thanks, Nick. That, 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 th- those are a bunch of really important issues that are, are going to have to play themselves out over the next couple of months and years. Um, I, I guess I guess on the point of the the effectiveness of lobbyists and, and some of the issues going on in terms of efforts to expand protections for businesses, in, either in specific industries or more generally, um, Tim, you had mentioned uh, the Chamber of Commerce and some, some of the efforts that are, be- that are being made at the federal level to try to um, get Congress to impose more sweeping kinds of uh, liability shields in place. And I, I'm guessing, well, what, what I wanted to ask was, how do you see this playing out? What What is the likelihood, it, I, maybe it's hard to say, of the success of those kinds of initiatives? And what what, is, what are the alternatives? So, I mean, if such a provision was not enacted um, and successfully resisted by Congress. What does that leave us with in terms of the, the likelihood of litigation and, and liability related 
to COVID-19? Well, I think on the consumer or, or patron of business side, these are lawsuits that are likely to be very difficult to bring in the first place. So while there is liability exposure, I think the chances of a business being sued as long as it's being reasonably prudent are relatively low. There are at least three big difficulties in bringing such a lawsuit. One is you have to show that the business failed to exercise reasonable care. And reasonable care doesn't require that you make sure that it's a completely safe environment where transmission is impossible. Reasonable care just requires that you basically take cost-effective measures like gloves and masks and social distancing, that you follow regulatory guidance from public health authorities, that you keep up with the industry standards of what people in your business, whether it's bowling alleys or nail salons or anybody else is doing, and that you exercise common sense. If you do that, generally, you're not subject to liability. Furthermore, anybody bring a lawsuit would have to prove that they got the COVID-19 in that particular venue, and that would be very difficult to prove now because it's so endemic in the population. And finally, there's a problem of assumption of the risk. If you go into such a place as a consumer, you may be considered to have assumed that risk, and that could be a problem. So it's unlikely there are going to be a lot of consumer lawsuits. And on the employer side, because uh, of workers' compensation, it's possible we won't see many of these lawsuits at all. So if immunity is not passed at the federal level and the politics play out that we get another COVID bill and there's no immunity attached, this may be a lot of fuss about nothing. There may be exposure that makes people you know, want to be careful or reasonably prudent, but there may not be a flood of tort suits. And I wouldn't expect there to be a flood of litigation, at least at this point. At the same time, the business community has been pushing every year for the last 20 years for tort reforms like this to shield businesses from liability exposure. And this is a policy opportunity for them. This is an open window, which they are trying to go through. How the politics on this play out really is anybody's guess. The signals from Washington seem to be switching pretty much every day, sometimes even within the same news cycle as to what the direction of policy is, who's in charge, uh, and whether or not there are certain conditions on the furtherance of you know new legislation for bailout. Yeah, well, so, so we are almost out of time here. And so what I wanted to do was just give each of you a, a final chance to uh, highlight any additional issues in this area that we should be paying attention to. It doesn't have to be a prediction, but just um, things that we should be keeping our eye on uh, as we move forward, go, going ahead with this uh, pandemic as it continues. So, uh, Nick, any any final thoughts? Well, again, uh, picking up from um, from Tim's point, uh, when we teach negligence, the negligence standard in torts, we spend relatively little time discussing reasonable care and most of our time discussing in all the circumstances, right? And clearly, in all the circumstances would take care of a lot of the issues raised during these kinds of emergencies and making it less likely for healthcare workers and so on uh, to be liable. I do think that there will be some interesting challenges, maybe constitutional challenges, state or federal level to some of these provisions. I think Utah just came out of the blocks with a, a reopening immunity that was just signed by the governor. Tim's governor in his executive order, op- reopening the state, actually inserted a liability shield in there, uh, which uh, a, a lot of people uh, seem to be arguing is is of dubious uh, validity. But we're going to see a lot of these. And I think the, the real question is, as, as um, Tim says, while tort reform at the federal level really hasn't had too much traction, this is a disaster that insurers and defendants and their lobbyists will not uh, be prepared to let pass. And there will be a real, a lot of energy put into trying to get something very deep and global and extending, I think, way past COVID-19. So a lot of monitoring is required. Tim, any last comments or additional points to end things up here? Mitch McConnell has suggested that there's you know, a threatened pandemic of lawsuits. And I think a lot of people are worried about the social chaos or the difficulties that would be introduced by a large wave of lawsuits. But I think actually the real problem here is, is that there are a lot of cross-cutting political wins. People who own small businesses are getting a lot of mixed signals from Washington and the contradictions between what they're being told by Washington officials 
officials and what they're being told by their state officials. And here in Georgia, the contradiction between what they're being told by their state officials and what they're being told by their local officials. And it seems to me that we need a little bit of stability amidst all of this sort of election year politics about who's opening, when they're opening, what the terms of that are. It seems to me that liability exposure might bring a little bit of that stability. It sends a signal to small business owners that if you want to know how it is that you can open your business, you can open your business as long as you use reasonable care. You take cost-effective precautions, gloves, masks, and social distancing. You follow public health guidance from public health authorities. You follow industry customs of the people that you know around you who are operating in your same space, and you use common sense. And if you do those things, you're probably on the right track to protecting the public. Thank you very much to both of you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, These are important issues that are going to continue to play out over time, and we will keep talking about them here on our COVID law and policy briefings. Uh, Be sure to tune in next week. We'll have three more briefings on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at noon Eastern. Uh, You can also find uh, recordings of of these broadcasts at the Public Health Law Watch website and also on the Weekend Health Law podcast, uh, which Nick thankfully has allowed us to be rebroadcasting on on his podcast as well there, uh, the Weekend Health Law, uh, which is www.twill.com. And I also want to thank Faith Collick and Bethany Saxon, who produce the COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefings. We will all see you next time. Please stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, and please stay inside.